This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it, at the Center for Metal Arts with Pat Quinn, you got to take care of a little bit of business, okay? One thing is, is I want to thank my sponsors, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your handles, for your steel, for your Damascus, whatever you got. It's all-natural food-safe, so if you're making stuff that you're going to be giving to someone who might use it for whatever, it's nice to have something that's food safe. Axe Wax is all natural food safe. It's great. If you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. If you're in the EU, you go to knifematerial.at and Keith Colby will give you 10% off with FULLBLAST10. If you go to the UK, uh, UK Knife Suppliers will give you 10% off with Knife Talk. 10, give you t- uh, Toby will give you 10% off. And if you're in the Australia, Nordic Edge, nordicedge.com.au will give you 10% off with Full Blast 10. So thank you very much, Axe Wax. The next is, you really want to think about your website. Your website could be more of an assistant than, it, than it, a deterrent. So when you're dealing with people in the DMs, sometimes they just want to be tire kickers. Sometimes they just want to like ask questions. Some of them just want to be your friend and you're trying to get some business done. So get yourself a good website. Andreas Kalani has 25 years of experience in graphic design, web development, software, all that stuff. He can do logo redesign. He can fix your website. He can make your new website. He can consult with you on your website. So go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. And as a listener, you're going to get 10% off your order, which is great. So get yourself on your website. I'm, I'm telling you guys, especially you're, you're, you work by yourself and you're maybe in your shop, whatever you're doing, you don't want to be dealing with the stuff on the phone. You don't want to deal with people. Get yourself a website that can answer all the questions for... <laughs> I'm sorry. Answer all the questions that you might have. That was too funny, and and there's no one who's going to know all about. <laughs> there's no Pat Quinn is the greatest. I'm just I, Pat's the best. So go to get yourself a good website. slash full blast It's definitely worth your while. Okay. And the last thing is, I want to thank Total Boat. Total Boat makes epoxies and primers and and uh, paints and and um, really great stuff. I really 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 like uh, Total Boat. They used to be. Uh, just making um, epoxies and resins and stuff for uh, boat builders. Now they're addressing the DIY DIY community, and they're making these really great epoxies. I use uh, their uh, Total Boat High Performance Two Part Epoxy for uh, re- uh, for sca- handle scales. I know that there are um, they have thick set casting epoxies that are amazing. If you wanted to, you know, submerge something and make a table and ha- or you know, whatever you do that river tables that people do and and they're really it's amazing stuff and it's very inexpensive and they make it for they make it for people they're very wary of how they're being used so even their uh, their cans and their dispensers are very very forward thinking uh, there's a lot of people who use Total Boat, uh, Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell also will use Total Boat. And my, my last guest, Ben from uh, Woby Design, uses Total Boat. He depends on Total Boat. He's making, he's making bicycles out of reclaimed skateboards, and they're all held together with Total Boat epoxy. So it's like if you're riding down the street with a skateboard bicycle, 
held together by Total Boat Epoxy, and he's okay. So if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So go to TotalBoat.com. Put in promo code FULLBLAST10. You're going to get 10% off all your Total Boat stuff. Thank you, Total Boat. You guys are awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, get yourself some Total Boat, okay? My, I am, you, this is a very unique experience for me because I am now in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm here with Pat Quinn of the Center for Mental Arts. We're here on a weekend workshop. I'm teaching this friction folder class, and I am having a blast. I'm ha- it's such an honor to be here, and I have such a unique... It's a very unique experience for me being here, and it's emotional to a certain degree, and I cannot thank enough my guest, Pat Quinn. Pat, good morning, and thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming here and, and, and teaching this workshop and everything. really appreciate it. Pat, you have no idea what this means to me. It really, I'm like literally, every time I've been talking to you since I've gotten here, walking around the campus, you've been showing me the, um, all the buildings. We're going to talk about the buildings. My experience, I have goosebumps now because my experience is very unique with the Center for Mental Arts. Yep. We've talked about this before. I was one of the, the uh, fabricators and blacksmiths at the old Center for Mental Arts. And I left, and then you came in later, and you revamped, revitalized, focused the attention on the stuff that wasn't focused on when we were there. And I have totally made... (laughs) Pat's the best. Pat is cruising around. He's dancing a little bit. He's making sure he's comfortable. Don't worry about that. But the emotional part about it is the fact that I've seen it from the beginning, and now to to be... Included in the new in the to be included in the new Center for Metal Arts is such an honor for me, and I really, really appreciate your generosity and gratitude. Really appreciate it. it means a lot. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, we've talked before about the Center for Metal Arts, and now I've now that I've actually been here, it's. It's such a place of incredible history, but the history is not necessarily what you'd think. So the Center for Mental Arts campus, explain the campus itself, what it used to be before you came here. The campus consists of, um, well, it's in a section of the old steel mills in Johnstown that's referred to as the lower works by the Cambria Iron Company dating all the way back to the mid 1800s um, that name still um, is what this area is called which I think is really cool and super special it's the it is the oldest part of the steel mill um, so when when the iron makers and um, people like that came to Johnstown and wanted to develop iron and steel business. Um, they they built the lower works first, and the and the lower works consists of um, a lot of shops that we like to refer to. I guess a good way to describe them is like craft shops. So um, within this little cluster of buildings here, you've got the forge shop, machine shop carpenter shop um, and foundry so 
in the carpenter shop, they made all the patterns that went to the foundry and got cast in iron and steel. And then in the forge shop, they made a lot of parts for machines, uh, serviced a lot of other um, functions of the steel mill. And then a lot of those forgings, especially once it got to an industrial scale, went over to the machine shop to get uh, machine to tolerance to continue to grow the mill, build more machines and things like that. So literally, if you're in the in the mid 1800s or late 1800s or even, you know, so much as as getting into the early 1900s, if you want to create a steel mill, you've got to be completely self-sufficient. And I think what became this um, gigantic uh, iron producer and then developed the technology to make a lot of steel. Uh, they all, that whole facility depended on the lower works, specifically in the beginning of its creation, to function and, uh, and to grow. Hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things about this, this when you walk through the different buildings... There's the first the building where the sh- the classes are, mm-hmm. which used to be was that the machine shop or that's the pattern shop the pattern the shop carpenter shop. So you walk through this the main the space where there is you walk in for the classes and you walk through this long bay of of windows, these almost like cathedral windows. Yeah, arches and everything. Arches in the windows and they're tall. When you start to walk down that aisle, and that's where you you and Dan have a, the research area where you have you know power hammers and you have your own desks and you're working on stuff, and then you walk through, and then you get to the back of the that space, and you you know turn into this beautiful forge area for the classrooms. Mm-hmm. You cannot help but think about the past right. when you look at these tall windows facing the river. Facing the river that we're going to talk all about that river. Mm-hmm. You can't help but think that when these buildings were built, they were built with the intention of giving lots of light for the workers. Mm-hmm. So you, when you, you, it's not something, you know, a lot of people, when they think about like if they get a shop or they, they even a small shop or they get a shed or they get a, you know, a garage or that those are meant to be, those are spaces meant not for what you, normal listeners of this podcast doing this space was intended for people to work Mm -hmm. with a specific ceilings are high Mm -hmm. the windows are a lot high because obviously they're not you know especially back in the day they're not going to put in like you know fluorescent tubes for all the workers so you have this real sense that the building was meant to be for this construction of big things Mm -hmm. to the point where when i walk through i notice that you've also kind of like you've seen that and you've made all the tables. You've, you, it's not just that you've wrecked the place and made it all new. You've really seized upon what, how people worked in the past, and you're implementing that now. Mm-hmm. When you first came to the place, came to uh, Johnstown, there were you have three main buildings. For the Center for Metal Arts. So we're in one of them now, which is going to be the kind of museum almost. And central offices. Central offices. Library, stuff like that. Then you have the blacksmith shop, which is what you call the blacksmith shop, the Octagon, right? Yeah, it has a lot of different names. So there's the blacksmith shop, which I've, I'm sure you've seen these enormous 
enormous power hammers uh, we're going to talk about. And then you have the, the, the building where your research facility is plus the classrooms. Right. When you first walked in, how long had it been since anyone had been in these buildings? Well, <clears throat> um, the mills closed in Johnstown in 1992. So from a Cambria slash Bethlehem perspective... Nobody had been in the building since then, and that is pretty true for the blacksmith shop. However, the pattern shop, which is where the research and classroom is, um, that had some other businesses in it after the mills closed that did uh, wood finishing and and stuff like that. So there had been some folks in there um, throughout the mid to late 90s and then I think even into the early 2000s. But um, like most of this infrastructure and part of the reason why the steel mills closed in Johnstown is it's incredible amount of resources and, and stuff to modernize these facilities. And I think a lot of people come in here um, and they think, well, the mills are closed now, but here's a carpenter shop. I can, I can move my woodworking business in here and, and make a go at this. But quickly realize, um, and I'm just speculating here, but that the facilities are in desperate need of modernization. And that takes an incredible amount of capital or whatever for a business to do. So uh, ultimately don't really last very long in there. And I think that's part of the reason why... Nobody ever came to take over the blacksmith shop um, because of all the um, necessary things you have to do to make it a functional building. And then specifically, if you're a architectural iron person or you've got a, you know, LLC profit based business or something like that, the, the amount of money you'd need to invest into that building to make it functional um, and then certainly is surrounded by a lot of hammers that probably aren't really relevant for your business if you're making architectural work or something like that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So that one sat empty from from 92 until we got here in 2018. When I when you took me around and we were, we were looking into the uh, into the spaces, especially the blacksmith shop. I all you know, I've seen pictures from your, your, some of the instructors who've been here. I've seen pictures that you've posted in regards to these enormous hammers. And none of them ever do justice. Right. Like when you walk into that space, that main space with there's one, two, there's four giant hammers. Four, five hammers. Five giant hammers. Giant. I mean like giant. It's overwhelming. The space itself... You call you call the octagon too because the building is the shape of an octagon. That's the that's the original structure. The original so structure in the 1850s when the Cambria Iron Company wanted to establish itself here. The first thing they needed to build was a blacksmith shop. You want to build anything industrial or otherwise, you need a blacksmith shop. Now. I'm going to go a little bit on a tangent go here, ahead. but this, I think this is important because a lot of people ask me like, what did this shop do? And so my point to all this was that it, at that time period, it was just the octagon. All those other rooms are additions throughout the years as the mills grew and you needed more work area in the blacksmith shop. But one of the major reasons why the steel mill 
established itself in Johnstown and made such a great go at iron and steel production for such a long time was because Johnstown is a uh, like perfect storm of natural resources needed to make iron and steel. So in these surrounding hills that you see as you're going through town and stuff, they're filled with coal and iron ore. And um, the Cambria Iron Company needed to harvest all these natural resources. So I think in the very, very beginning, that blacksmith shop did a lot to just service the mining industry for the steel mill. Hmm. So it's like, you know, repoint the chisels, make, make all the miners tools. So it wasn't this industrial hammer shop right away. It was this octagonal structure. And I think, um, did a lot more small parts forging for the mining industry so that the employees in the business could literally get the iron and the coal out of the hills. So the mining, the mining in this area really is what spurred on. The, and then I, w- I would imagine, I'm just I'm speculating. So if the mining here is good for this stuff, it might as well have a short, a short span between where the mining is to where the steel production is. And it made sense to just build it as close as possible where the mining is. Yeah. And I mean, Western Pennsylvania, you had those iron furnaces in the woods all over the place. People making iron smelting furnaces and I'm not, not an iron expert. So I forgive me if I'm not using the right terminology, but, uh, even in the Northeast, like in New Jersey and stuff, you can go see them there. Sometimes they're like national landmarks or something right. they're preserved, but they're these like pyramidal stone iron furnaces. And, and, and so that was everywhere here too. But I think eventually they just, it's like when you find that vein of iron ore right. and you just can keep you know, the infrastructure just continues to grow the longer you stay in one spot because of the natural resources. We, you can see that in Johnstown because there is so much, I mean, it's a lot of factories, even now, now they're more abandoned, but I mean, you do see the fact that this obviously was like a perfect campsite almost for getting ready to prepare for all those, yeah, for all the creation. So the hammer that we refurbished, the 3000 in the middle of the octagon, that hammer came there in 1904. So the blacksmith shop existed for 50 years before a hammer that size. Well, the double arch hammer was made in 1890. So, you know, they were probably doing industrial forging before that. But just to give you like an idea when you walk into that octagon you think oh those hammers have been here forever well i don't think they have been i think there was the octagon and then the hammers in the octagon came a little later and then the self-contained came in 1940 so the hammers in the octagon do you explain to me now what it goes through to run one it's such a production back in the day how are they run, how are they fueling and running those giant hammers? I'd say a great blanket statement is that the entire steel mill ran on steam. So, and when you look around, there's pipes everywhere running outside, inside through all these old buildings and a lot of them are steam pipes. So they had several several steam making facilities that would service the entire mill. How are they making the steam? It's boiling water. Boilers, I guess. Coal. I mean, you got the coal. Right. Like it's, right. there's right. boiler shops here where their whole 
business was to make the boilers for the steel mill to run. It back to what you were saying in terms of like it builds upon itself. It's like it's amazing. One of the things that was amazing to me was you had some of the patterns of the hooks that they were making. Mm-hmm. These you know five foot long giant hooks that they were forging on these hammers. The, it, it, it's like I said, it's overwhelming because. You know, you look in the middle of this room and then there are these two enormous hammers and you got one working, which is just extraordinary. You explained to me the effort it takes to, to you know, you renovated it, to, uh, you restored this one hammer. Retell the story of how you restored the hammer. Uh, well, you know, it just kind of became this thing that we decided to poke away at at certain point in our time here earlier than I think any of us had really anticipated, but we knew it was going to take an incredible amount of energy and time to do it. So we decided to start kind of, um, you know, without any sort of fanfare or announcements or whatever, we we had this goal of, of using the hammer by a certain date. And we got together as an organization, myself and Dan, and uh, we had some really helpful interns at the time as well. And we just created a little bit of a plan and we selected that particular hammer because through our research after we got here, we learned and understood that that hammer was the last one to operate so it was in the best condition meaning it had all its parts and we didn't have to remake anything we just had to take it apart clean it oil it put it back together essentially but it still took a lot of time energy and effort all the bolts were pretty well seized and all that kind of stuff so Little by little, we just poked away at it until eventually we got it to a point where we felt like uh, it was ready to go. And I think I told the story before when we had the forklift under the under the ram. Go ahead. We um, we lifted the ram up, and I was just like, "Okay, so we're going to lift the ram up, and it's going to get stuck, and then we're we're faced with this like." Well, what do you do, right? <laughs> but, I mean, the best part of the entire restoration process for me was after we took the valves apart, cleaned them up, put them back together, oiled everything, um, we had the forklift in there, and so the ram, the rod, and the die weigh 3,000 pounds, and we got the forks under the guides with wood, you know, to protect them or whatever, and we lifted the ram up and that was a really special moment as first time it had been lifted up since 1992 and we lifted it you know all the way up and then uh and then i was like you know expecting it to get stuck but when i lowered the forks they lowered about an inch away from the die and then the die started to fall and then it they just fell together and i in that moment i was like this thing's gonna run you know, well, okay. Go ahead. These machines are incredibly simple. I'm not a rocket scientist. I don't have a ton of experience restoring hammers. But there's only two moving parts. And there's no spinning parts. Like, that's what makes working on my nasal super tough. The tolerances are so tight. 
and there's so many pieces rotating and spinning that need to be machined and this, that, and the other thing. This is two up and down valves and that's it. I would imagine, I remember you were saying in the last episode that you said that every morning you'd come in and hose it down with PB Blaster. Yeah. I love that because in my mind, I'm, th- I'm like seeing like, I'm looking at you now, you've got your cup of coffee in your hand and you kind of stroll in there with the PB Blaster and I just, I see you just being like every morning, maybe even like by yourself thinking and maybe even talking to the hammer a little bit it's pretty meditative like it's it's really nice to to spend some time in there in the morning yeah you know and and reflect on the space and the the bigness of it all and i I don't mean the physical bigness but metaphorical business of course bigness of what we're trying to do here and everything and well, and the other thing is we were talking about is the space is, is the space in and of itself under the hammer. So there's in the main octagon room there are two hammers. One of the hammers has you you believe that you're going to get rid of. I'm not get rid of, but move and maybe make as a sculpture was used as parts. Yes, the only thing just to clarify for the listeners, um, th- there's there's one frame in there with no parts at all and I think my plan and I'd have to consult with the rest of the organization is um, we'd like to take that frame outside and use it as a landmark for CMA because there's that's now I think that's usable space and within the octagon of which you know it's not this gigantic shop Right, it has gigantic hammers in it, but right. it's not that big. So when we're going to take it and change it from a production facility for an industrial uh, business and turn it into an artist studio, we need a little bit more open space. And within the that octagonal structure, you've got a four thousand pound utility, a three thousand pound utility, and a two thousand pound self-contained. So when you look at this frame. I mean, I think it'd be behoove us to take the frame outside and, and maybe put some a work surface there, like some plaque tables or something. So, it's the space is overwhelming because when you, I mean, the the the, the 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 hammers are amazing. When you look up, do you see they rebuilt the roof? And what's interesting to me is, and I have to give a lot of credit to besides you and the CMA, I got to give a lot of credit to Johnstown. Because you had told me that Johnstown really saw this facility, this area, as a historic landmark. So they went out of their way, not out of their way, but they did what they were supposed to do and then they preserved the building. Part of the building was having to redo the roof. Yeah. Based on the area in and of itself, the fact that they, they thought to, to preserve this as a historic area is very special. There's this... You know, you have a huge, you have a roof. When you look up from the hammers, you see these beams. And I said to you, first thing I said to you is, are those beams, are those beams okay? Because, I mean, obviously this hammer is just so enormous that you'd imagine that the vibrations would take so much. I I wonder if, like, when they, you said that they brought in engineers and they redid the, the building. Based on just sitting there or based on the hammers running? I don't know. I hope they considered that. I'm sure they considered that. They, the, Johnstown always wanted it to become a functioning blacksmith shop again, so I'm sure that was considered. That's the best. That See, the, what I love about this whole story is, you know, you think about, you think about 
the, the businesses that came in and they probably thought, wow, it's inexpensive and the space is so great. But to make this place functional, I mean, there's so much rehabilitation that needs to happen. I can't help but think that you are you are the person that you and the CMA were the were the, was the organization that John Sandler crossing their fingers would show up mm-hmm. because you can't do anything in the octagon. I mean, if you were a business, you'd have those all those hammers in there with no with nothing. I mean, you can't. I mean, it's almost like if you were anything else, you'd have to just work around them. Yeah, you would definitely have to work around them, and you know they're. Like I said earlier about modernizing the facilities, that that shop really doesn't wouldn't function well as a modern industrial forging facility, and, and that's part of why it's not functioning as one anymore. And it's those hammers don't apply to modern um, forge work from people like us who do architectural ironwork or whatever. So you know if you're, it's tough to make a go at that shop unless you need those hammers and not a lot of people need those hammers yeah and you know it sounds kind of like well why'd you come here pat but it's like i i I think that those hammers um are gonna have a really cool second life as as tools for creativity and education and stuff like that and i think that's sort of the most important role they can play right now and that's why cma is a good fit i mean when they did their new roof and the new floor and they repointed all the brickwork and put new buildings in there, that was in 2008. And Richard from the Historical Society actively searched out blacksmiths for 10 years. Blacksmiths came to that shop to visit and everybody thought it was great, but nobody wanted to make a go at it for those reasons. You right. know, and he, he did articles in Havana magazines and he even went to Havana conferences I mean it's really hard I mean at that point that was kind of like the main place where you might look for a blacksmith because it was pre-social media really but um, you know and then he likes to joke around he's like I looked for 10 years couldn't find anybody who wanted to do it and right as I was about to give up you guys found us and exactly like what you said it was so serendipitous and the perfect fit I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It really is. It's like one of those things that, that's one of the great things that's in there now is you made a sculpture with Jack, Jake James, right? Jake, you made a sculpture with Jake James. Yeah, it's Jake's, Jake's sculpture. Jake's sculpture. Mm-hmm. It is almost seven feet tall mm-hmm. and it's a forging. It weighs 350 pounds. It's, maybe. it's so beautiful and unique. Because it's clearly forged. This is the clear forged sculptural aspects. You have this long, um, the the up the upright piece has indentations and it has fullerings and it has you know hammer hits, and then it's embedded in this almost I want to say base. I don't know if that's an insult or not, but it's like embedded into this other piece of steel which has obviously been forged. Mm-hmm. When you look at it. It's amazing. But when you think about how big it is and how impossible it would have been any other way to make, mm-hmm. it's overwhelming because of that. This is the purpose of those, those giant hammers. Right. The most, the most amazing part was we were in, you were taking me around. And P.S., when, it's, when you look at the bill of the pictures and it says blacksmith shop, everybody's mind thinks it's just a bunch of anvils and some forges. They don't have any idea 
the massiveness of what the blacksmith shop is because our minds can't get around the idea of using this equipment for you know incredible stuff in huge things you brought me into the research facility where you have three incredible hammers three incredible mechanical hammers and you have a steam hammer and you explained how you and Jake and your team made this mock-up for the demonstration of this giant sculpture to to build this giant sculpture. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, and it was it was amazing because it's like you, you walk into the blacksmith shop, you see these enormous hammers, mm-hmm. and then you walk into your research facility, which on any other place would be three enormous hammers. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you said to me is, "How small do these look now?" And I'm like, "Tiny, mm-hmm. micro, micro, micro <laughs> size." Because you you're completely your your attitude is completely changed, right? So I want to know, take me back to when you and Jake were working on figuring out how to make this sculpture because it's so performative and the sculpture in and of itself, Mm -hmm. performative, but it's a team. You can't just wing it. Right. Take me back to that sculpture build. Well, I mean, I think this is also like a really good opportunity to just talk a little bit about this event every year that CMA yeah. does um, our, our mission and I'll get right to the sculpture but um, since the 1850s until the 1990s nobody could go into that shop unless you had an employee badge for the mill after the 90s until the 2018 or so era you couldn't go there unless you knew somebody in the city who had the key our mission is to make that space available to the forging community. Um, one for qualified professionals uh, to use those hammers to make large-scale work, which, in my mind, uh, most appropriately in today's age is, is a sculptural context. Um, but also the people from the town whose grandfathers work there come and they look because they've never been there before and it's really special for them. And then people from the forging community, like the students, like every student that comes to CMA wants to see it, obviously. And they say, you know, we're going to get to see the big hammers and the industrial shop and we take everybody in there and it's just such a special thing. So we 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 run a conference every year where we ask a different visiting instructor or artist to come and demonstrate on the the industrial hammers and um it's a really fun event and it's it's so low key and uh community oriented and sculptural uh focused and and it's about the appreciation of the history and these new lives for these hammers but for everybody to come and see these hammers run is a really special really special event so i encourage anybody who um is listening if they want to come they should come to this event it's in september 17th this year so um you know feel free to let us know if you have any questions and when when, just before you before you say (laughs) when he says special you can't just flip a switch and these hammers go on right it is an enormous undertaking to get that hammer going it is it is and i i feel i mean i'm a little self-conscious right now because i just you know, kind of plugged one of our things don't on worry podcast about that. or whatever. But I really like, I don't, I don't think a lot of my posts are getting out there right now. So I want as many people to appreciate this shop as possible. Right. So I think it's a, it's a great event. 
and um, love to see everybody there. Um, everybody's friendly. There's there's no egos. It's just a great place. Meet a lot of different blacksmiths. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff going on. But the, last year was our first year doing it, and I think I was telling you this in the octagon. It was like I felt like I looked into the future. You know, the future of that shop. It was the first time we had ever given that hammer something it really deserved to forge as far as the size of the mass and the material that that sculpture you were talking about um, is made out of. But when you're in the research facility versus the octagon, we, we had um, stumbled across this Chambersburg utility hammer, 400 pound ram. And uh, I don't really think we were really in the market for buying hammers at that point. But I made the commitment to do so because I saw its value as a maquette hammer for the 3000. I mean, when you think about the amount of resources, time, energy, both financial and physical, um, that it takes to operate a hammer of that scale with material it deserves to forge, you got to know what you're doing. Right. You can't just guess. You can't just go there and be like, oh, I guess, you know, I'll cut a piece of this like six inch round and hopefully I'll get the taper length I want. And hopefully I've got the tools I need to make the sculpture. So with Jake, and we're going to do this with Zach as well, Zach Noble, who's our demonstrator this year, they come a week early and work with Dan and I and our interns in the research shop under the 400 making a half-scale maquette. And it's in the shop. I, I forgot to show you, but that big sculpture in the octagon, we have a half-scale. So that sculpture was made in the octagon out of 6x6 six six square bar, and we made one out of 3x3 three three square bar under the 400. And it was such a valuable experience because... When you're at the 400 and you're running like a chili forge or whatever, or like a, you know, near general artist blacksmith forge with a hundred pound propane tank, you have the luxury of, you know, what tools are we going to do? And then make the tool you need or the fuller or the flatter or whatever, and troubleshoot this forging and, and take notes and get it to where you need to be so that... When you go into the octagon and invest in everything it takes to run that hammer, you have some idea of what you're doing. Right, right. And that, you know, and that's becoming increasingly important to me as somebody who manages Center for Metal Arts, understands all of the, you know, ins and outs of the programmatic stuff, the financials, you know, all that sort of thing. I've got to be cognizant of, of how we're operating and I think it's just smart forging practice to know what you're doing before you um, step up to the plate, so to speak. So what's, what's fascinating is, is when you brought us into the octagon first, the way that the giant hammer runs is you have a driver. Uh -huh. And then there's two levers. One lever is, I forgot what you said, the, 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 the power. Throttle and the stroke. The thro throttle and the stroke. So one, one of the levers, the driver moves the levers and gets the hits, the specific hits you want. 
then you have whatever your team holding the material with chain hoist and stuff like that. Getting that Chambersburg in the research facility makes so much sense because the Chambersburg operates similar, as similarly as pot. No? Yeah, exactly oh, the si- same. Oh, exactly the same. Okay, good. So well, the, you have the same concepts. So if you have the two handle strokes and then you have exactly. the driver. And then what? because this isn't like getting on a little giant stepping on the pedal, you have to have communication. You have to know exactly the, the sizing. So when you're making the ma- maquette, you have a smaller um, version based on the performative aspects of what you need to do once you get into the octagon. Mm-hmm. That's fucking awesome. Well, when we got the 400, it had a pedal on it, it had treadle, and right. pulled so, it right off. And you made it exact. You made it a smaller version, version. of the bigger. Yeah. So how? So okay, okay. You get that hammer. You got them going. When you start to do, in my mind, I'm thinking this is like the space shuttle, the astronaut space shuttle situation where you have like teams of guys and you're preparing. You got a couple guys making sure that the big hammer's getting ready. You got a week ahead before when Jake shows up. You're working on the, you're talking with the driver, you're figuring out the movements because you're on the smaller Chambersburg, you're able to kind of just do that same movement on the bigger hammer. What was the excitement level? When you first, because I'm thinking to myself, in my mind, when you first walk into that space and you're spraying, you start up spraying PV blaster over the place, I'm imagining that first time you undo one of those seized bolts, it's a victory. Mm-hmm. So now you've got that, you did the, with the lift, you've lifted the ram with the forklift, now you got it going, now the space shuttle is ready to, to launch, and then you're in the research facility working out the performative aspects. Because the mechanical stuff's done. Mm-hmm. The mechanical stuff's finished. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go into what it takes to run those big hammers, which is like a true commitment. You, you know, you think about it when you were talking about just, you know, getting a, a small forge going with a 100-pound tank. Okay, you know, you, you fool around for the day. The, the, <laughs> to make this work, you have... A specific amount of time. I know you were saying that just to heat the steel up, you had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to start the forges. Mm-hmm. You have a specific. You have an extraordinarily expensive. You're on the clock when you're on, you're on the clock. The meter's running as soon as you decide you want this thing going. Yeah. Take me back to you guys are in the research facility and how you're doing this maquette. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I don't know. Can you be more specific? Well, I mean, like, I, w- w- was there, I mean, did you have an idea of like, all right, Dan's okay. going to be the driver okay. and, and how okay. do you I orchestrate the yeah. whole thing? Yeah, so, all right, so that's a really good question. I didn't really think I understood the nature of it. But, all right. Um, it, w- w- during the conference on the Big Hammer, it was a five-person operation the entire time. We tried to do something with four people and it became immediately apparent that it was dangerous. So you need five, like it for with the size of the billet we were forging five people for us was the magic number. So we're using, um, manual chain hoists to get the material to and from the forge. Um, well, all right, let me backpedal to the maquette. So basically Dan has um, found himself to be the driver. That's a role I think that he really enjoys and he's getting really good at. So when it's Jake and us 
in the research facility doing the maquette, Dan is driving the hammer. Jake is, quote-unquote, the blacksmith, and I am his assistant. So in the research facility, we didn't need to use any overhead cranes to move the material around. We had two interns at the time, Harry from the American College of the Building Arts and Logan, uh, who's kind of like a journeyman at this point. Um, And so they were really helpful with like getting the tools and helping us move the material, citing things, this, that, and the other thing. But on something that size, it was generally Dan's the driver, Jake's the, the smith with the vision, and uh, and basically the captain of the ship, and um, and I'm first mate, and so um, that translates pretty directly to what it was like in the octagon under the three thousand. Dan was the driver. You don't want to all of a sudden put a new driver. Right. I've practiced over there with that, so we all. We all kind of fell into the same roles, um, but in the in the octagon, um, we needed to use the the crane to get the material from the furnace to the hammer, and we quickly realized and learned that the hardest part of working on that hammer was moving the material around. It wasn't forging. The the hammer chews that stuff up, no problem, once you get it on the die. Getting it on the die was tough. So even before the we did the maquette, you know, Saturday's the conference, everybody's going to be there Thursday and Friday. We were just over there bringing a cold piece of metal to and from the hammer. Practicing. Yeah, because... So... We rebuilt the furnace a little bit, and we intentionally made the floor of the furnace the same height as the bottom die on the 3000. But, you know, you get your chain under the material, and you got your tongs on the material. We don't have manipulators or anything like that. Um, They're great tools and equipment, but uh, we're, we're doing this all by hand. And uh, so you have to lift the material with the chain hoist and then swing it over on the crane. And it's a jib crane, so it's on a, it's on a swivel pivot point. And um, the way it worked out there was Dan was the driver, Jake was the smith, Logan ran the up and down, and Harry ran the swing, and I ran the tongs. So it was a really... And, and it was... It was slow. Like, I always think about it's so exciting and you're just super pumped up, but it's like, stop. Take a deep breath. Right. We've got time. Like a 250-pound billet stays hot for a long time. There's no rush. And keeping the material level on the die was really, really important. So we spent a lot of time, uh, you get the material over and, and everything we do on there was with a top tool. There's never really just an open die forging of this thing. You, you need tools to direct the material to get it to go where you want it to go. A 3,000 pound hammer with no tools is just gonna blow that shit out in all directions. Yeah. You need fullers, you need flatters, you need to tell the material where to go. But when you get over there and you've got a three inch round fuller 
on a half inch rod that's, you know, six, four feet long, um, you got to set the tool. And then me with the tongs, that was really important, right? So we get over there and everybody's real anxious to forge, but Dan would drop that ram on the tool ever so gently. And then when it touches that tool, everybody realizes how out of level you are and it goes click and then everything gets level and then Dan will send it. That's, that's a, cause that's what happens on when you're pulling out a, even if you're making a bottle opener, when you put the steel, when you put your hammer, your, your material on, maybe you're not holding it right and you feel a little bit uncomfortable in this situation. You break your arms. You break your arms. That hammer break your arms. I, everybody's dropped something out of their tongs in your mind. <clears throat> Have you thought about what happens if something happens with the chain and then the steel falls on the ground? How do we pick it up? We dropped the base. We pre-forged the base and that was a 125 pound billet or 100 pound billet or something. Do you have tongs big enough to pick these things up? <clears throat> uh, yeah. Yeah, we do. It's not easy. Um, we also have these like big shovels on a cart. Okay. Right. So, you know, one thing that didn't really have foresight was that they put a concrete floor in there. There never was a concrete floor in there until 2008 when they refurbished and restored the building. They thought it would be advantageous for it to have a concrete floor. It, it's not. I, I really wish it was still a dirt floor um, because when you drop uh, hot metal on concrete, concrete has moisture and it could explode. Right. And when the metal is literally too hot, too heavy for you to just pick up, uh, sits there. It becomes a real problem. Right. So we, we were able to pick it up and get it um, on one of those, excuse me, shovel carts and put it back in the furnace or whatever, but um, time is definitely of the essence when you have a 2,000 degree, 100 pounds at 2,000 degrees on six inches of concrete, you know, the math doesn't add up. And 100 people watching. Yeah, and 100 people watching. We didn't <laughs> drop it during the conference. Um, so. I can't imagine what it feels like to be in that space after all that, like I said, you, I'm seeing you, I'm picturing you strolling in there with the PV blaster one thinking to yourself, one day I'm going to get you going. You get to that space, you get to that space, you have people watching, you figured it out. Now, do you have like a lit, I mean, I'm just, I'm just out of curiosity. Do you have like a list of the movements that need to be done? Does everybody know the choreography? This isn't like, let's do one more heat and see what happens. I would imagine that every single hit, is calculated it is and it isn't i mean we had choreography we knew how to get the material to and from the furnace aside from that we were making decisions at the hammer like par- parallel with the long dimension of the die or perpendicular to the die um one more hit with the fuller or let me get the flatter, you know, all that kind of stuff that you normally do when you're forging was, was happening. And that's, that is sculpture. That's what makes being an artistically inspired blacksmith 
really interesting, difficult, also fun and exciting is lots of times you're doing something that there's no playbook for. There's no rule book. It's, it's, it, the result is something that the uh, person has in their head or on paper or whatever, but it's different than being an industrial smith or a, a, a product-based blacksmith or somebody who spends their whole life making an object or a tool for a company. When you're an artist, you always are making decisions on the fly. And I know from my experience, even when I do the math for the mass and then make the drawing or other way around, whatever, it's really hard to draw what happens at the hammer. And so you're constantly uh, being inspired in problem solving at the hammer. And that, that didn't change even though the hammer was so big. Was there a lot of, how close to the maquette was the final decision? Were there, were there subtle changes that Jake decided to make on the fly or let's go, let's make, make this a little bit. It was, it's dialed. Oh, really? It's pretty dialed. I mean, there's not really much that's different. I think the one thing we did that was different was it has this section with these big fuller marks. And that's like part of what, what's exciting is like using industrial process in the sculptural context. And the um, maquette, we didn't, we didn't pack the maquette on its side after we did the fuller marks. I think on the big one, we wound up packing the packing the sculpture on its side after we did the fuller marks. How gratifying was it? Because you know that when you talk about sculpture, a lot of times people see sculpture in and of itself as the object. Some people can um, some people can separate themselves out from the artist when they're looking at the work in and of itself. You can separate yourself out. You can separate the history of the artist with the sculpture in and of itself. But when you see that sculpture in that space, you realize the importance, the gravity of the performance of it, but also the importance of the gravity of Johnstown in and of itself. When you move to Johnstown, the history of this place is so incredible. And the fact that I want to know how coming to Johnstown in, informed your work. Because, I mean, your work as a sculptor is incredible. Your work as a, sculpt, as a tool maker, as a blacksmith is incredible. But there was this incredible evolution in your pers- the perspective of your work now. How do you feel this place has changed it? <clears throat> well, I think everything I do to a certain degree now is inspired by Johnstown's industrial heritage in some way, shape or form heritage. Yeah. So, um, there's a, and I'm not a historian, but in my heart, I know there's this time period in American history where even if you were a big corporation, there was an incredible amount of care taken in everything that you did. Right. And I don't know what time period that was. I mean, I look at that picture behind you and I feel like it was that time period. Time period where you wore slacks and suspenders even though you were an industrial blacksmith. Or the time period where you made arched windows 
in your shop. Like who is going to pay for arched windows right. right now? Everything right now is about saving money and making money. And I don't, we don't need to really get involved in that, but I want, and I work really hard to live in a world where everything you make is of the best quality that you can make it. So even if I'm just making a cart that is going to be next to the power hammer that I can rest tools on, it's riveted, you know, it's not welded and welding's fine. Welding's a great skill set. Everybody who's a great welder deserves all the credit and respect they can, they deserve. But, um, like when we were looking at images of, um, what's that Thomas Edison museum, right? And that's the same time period I'm talking about. And I took more pictures of the fixtures in that museum than anything else. Cause they were all riveted in the, the, you know, as pre welders anyway. So, you know, you can take a lot of care in your welds too. And I'm kind of digging myself into a verbal hole here, but, no, no, no. but the work that I make, I, I try to work under that philosophy of, um, making everything the best. It, it's, at CMA, it's never like, quick, make that make that cart, get it over there. I don't right. care what it looks like. No, no. I need to surround my students, our students, with inspiration everywhere they look. And that's a vice stand, that's a cart, that's a forge table, whatever. And then everything that we make, I like to try to really involve some of the time period of the buildings that we're in. So that's where the riveting comes into play. The, um, the structural beams, we use a lot of angle, a lot of channel, a lot of I-beam. I mean, that, that's, that, this city like reeks of those shapes. So we try to use them in any way we can. You know, I don't really like box tube that much, you know, so I'd rather, I'd rather make a tube out of angle iron. That's because, I mean, that's because that kind of tubing, that box tubing with the rounded corners was meant for a later part of the world, later part of industrialization yeah. where the rounded corners were meant for weld seams. Right. And it was, that was, those were, those were meant to, when you butt that box, the, the tubing up to the tubing, you had a place pre-beveled, for Pre-beveled, yeah. You pre-beveled. Mm-hmm. So I can totally imagine that those are, you know out of the you're not you're not going to see any tubing that that steel the material that's you don't normally see pre a certain date mm-hmm. that's that's it though like you know if i can put it quite simply it's like i say this all the time but my life's work at this point is to service the student And when the student comes into the classroom, I want them to be inspired. And, and that, that is everything from how we organize our tools to how we make our tools, carts, fixtures, vices, all that stuff. Like look around and understand that a blacksmith shop does not have to be a rusty, messy dump and and they're not all dumps but like everything is important right and And i think pride right and it comes back to the arch windows or you know the the brick molding on the and the outside of the blacksmith shop it's like that that took time money and energy but 
all that stuff that the Cambria Iron Company was willing to give because they were so proud of what they were building. Right. That that is one thing when you walk through the Center for Metal Arts, especially you know, it seems as though the the research facility and the um, blacksmith classroom, the classroom, is the first part of the real renovation of the whole campus that you've been focusing on, focusing on getting your space, your, the research area, this space finished. The classroom is extraordinary. When you're in that classroom, you have these beautiful forged, uh, riveted hoods that you guys made. You have this beautiful, these beautiful tables against the walls with a coal forge and uh, and a gas forge together. So you you can like go either way. the The coal forges are gorgeous. The everything is like in an, in its place. The anvils are where they're supposed to be. Everything is you know every student gets a riveted cart and the tooling is all prepared and everything is very thoughtful. When you turn inside and you look and you look to your left, you you're facing the river. You're facing the river that goes across that that runs down Broad Street, Iron, Iron Street. Street runs down Iron Street. And you know, right now it's snowing, which is crazy to me. We're in you know the end of March and it was snowing. And we, yesterday we were we were forging and there was snow running down and and it made me think about. It made me think about the history of this town, the, the sad history of this town. The sad history in the town. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. One of the things that he's going <laughs> to... Pat's leaving for a second. Don't worry. It's 7... It's fucking... It's 8 o'clock in the morning, guys. What do you expect from me? So, I cannot stress enough the incredible gravity of this, of this space. When you walk through, right now we're in the main building that's going to be more like a student, um, uh, it's going to be like a computer place, they have, uh, they're going to be doing more classes that are kind of clean work and stuff like that, there's going to be a museum here and a gallery here, there's, and, and I cannot help feel overwhelmed by the amount of work that needs to go into the restoration of the space and what we were saying before, if a company came in and said, wow, well, the prices are very inexpensive. This is a place that I could just put my facility, I could put my facility into. It would be just too much to, to do. It would be cheaper, as Pat was telling me before, it would be cheaper to have just shut the whole place, cut the whole place down and start anew. For Pat to be here, it was... It was, I mean, it's, it's crazy that you're here. It's crazy that you're here because it just seems like it's almost like it was obviously meant to be. Now, talking about, you know, we're now in the end of spring. The, it's snowing, which is a little bit irritating to me. But at the same time, it can't, I can't help but think that one, the, the spring snows are part of some of the worst natural disasters in the United States here in Johnstown. Take me back. I mean, you can't take me back. You tell me about 1936. Tell me about <coughs> how, what this, at the point, 19, was it 1886 when the first flood was? 89. 89. You have this facility. You're, they're working on the coal. You have the spaces. What's happening in 1889? Johnstown really is, is becoming a, a real 
industrial epicenter and um, a, a leading iron producer, steel producer in the country, um, a place where the most innovative minds of, of that um, sort of area of study gather to uh, create, you know, new technologies and develop things like the three high rolling mill was developed here. And, and, you know, that's just one example of one of the innovations of, of Johnstown and how impactful it was on everything we take for granted. Um, so, you know, if I could try to like paint a picture of what Johnstown was like at the late 1800s, it was exciting. And people came here because they wanted to be a part of the future of America and it, it was this place where, you know, iron ore was found in the hills and coal was found in the hills. And then one person had this idea and they, they just it just grew and developed. And then like any city, you know, it just it just continues to do so and prosper and thrive. And I think that's really, really what was happening. People were. It was exciting. It was part of the future. You were helping America like the steel rail was was made here. Like up until Cambria Steel, all the train rails were iron and they didn't last very long. So when it comes to like building a skyscraper and rolling an I-beam and then or making rails out of steel and completely transforming the locomotive industry and allowing Americans to go much farther west, much quicker and easier. It just was like a, a place where you wanted you wanted to be. Um, and you know, obviously, in eighteen eighty nine, uh, disaster struck here. But um, what happened? What was what happened? <clears throat> well, you know, there was there were certainly steel and iron making facilities sprouting up all over the country at that point and a lot lot were happening in Pittsburgh and things like that um, and there was there was a resort community you know uh, I don't know how many miles away from Johnstown it is but it's very close up in the hills where um, the the big wigs of the steel industry in Pittsburgh had uh, summer homes getaways uh, where they could be out in rural community and there was a man-made lake up there with an earthen dam and they would spend the summers up there sailing their boats and having fancy dinner parties and it was you know it was a it was a place where the where the elite you know would go spend their time in the summer and, and get away from the, the hustle and bustle of the city and you know pollution or whatever the heat the coal the dust like all that stuff they go out into the woods summer home by the lake sailing fishing all that kind of stuff well the dam uh to make a long story short was neglected and and there was a lot of um, speculation that it needed to be serviced and, and stuff like that and and ultimately uh this really crazy rainstorm came um, and it, it it ruined the dam and so the entire reservoir let loose 
and it, Johnstown is directly downstream from that reservoir, and uh, it completely destroyed the entire city of Johnstown. I it was, was the biggest natural disaster with the most casualties up until 9-11. Um, so it was, it was intense. And it was, uh, it's a part of the city's heritage and they, you know, it's nicknamed the flood city and there's the flood city cafe and there's also other floods or whatever, but, um, yeah, I don't know what you got. Well, I I was reading this morning about it and the massiveness of this. So so you have this river that's, that's made, that runs alongside Iron Street, which you can see from the center for metal arts and there was this incredible the what 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 from what I understand people were fleeing for their lives and obviously couldn't fast enough. No, you're yeah, saying no. Yeah, no, I'm I'm agreeing, but I understand the mixed signals. <laughs> and and houses were being wiped up. People were in their houses. Their houses were being washed down this river whole cities and then if you look a little bit uh east east of the of the uh center for mental arts you see the stone bridge Mm -hmm. all these houses being washed down were stopping at the stone bridge which still stands today hundreds and hundreds of people were in these houses they were they were being crushed in the debris they were up against this almost this man-made. It was like a dam. I mean, it seems as though it was like a like a dam stopping all the, the you know the debris, the houses. And you were telling me about it when we were up looking at it from the second floor of the research facility. That it was it caught on fire, and the the people were screaming, and the people were it was death and destruction and mayhem. What did what did people? You can't even imagine it. Houses were being ripped out of the ground and then floating downstream. I was reading an article about this woman who had survived when she was a child. She was on a rooftop or on, on the roof, and then she jumped up to another person's roof where there are other people. And they were, I mean, it was like unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Unimaginable. Devastating. Completely devastating. Completely tragic. I mean, there's, if you want to get morbid, there's statistics out there where you can read about like, how many people lost their children, how many children lost their parents, how many people were never found. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's crazy. And, but you know, the devastation of the flood is, has a lot to do with the mills because the water itself, I think was, it, it obviously water is very, very powerful, but, um, up river of Johnstown, like, uh, right before you get downtown was is the Franklin section of the steel mill, and they they had blast furnaces, they had wire mills, they had rolling mills all over the Franklin Franklin section of the mill was it became the biggest section of the mill. But my my point of the story is that the flood carried with it an entire steel mill, so it it, it was the water plus the mill, so like. As the water came down and hit the mills, it grabbed all of that shit like 
entire barbed wire manufacturing facility. And so can you just imagine this 40-foot wave with a barbed wire steel mill in it? You know what I mean? And so, like, the infrastructure that got caught up in in the flood that then came downtown was what flattened the whole city. And then everything, yeah, so when you get trapped over there at the Stone Bridge, it's... It's unimaginable. Beams, barbed wire, houses, fires. It was really crazy. How did Johnstown recover after that? <clears throat> well, you know, uh, in the book, which is a really great book called The Johnstown Flood by David McCullough, who's a historic um, author. Um, and in some of the research that I've, I've done, the Cambria Iron Company was up and running to some degree seven days after the flood. Oh my God. Which is insane. Insane. And I think obviously not to full capacity and I think at that point everything in Johnstown goes towards flood relief but um, I think it's a testament to how important the steel mill was to the city and how hard working the people were back then. When you walk through the research facility there's a sign that you left by in and of itself. There was another flood. Mm-hmm. It was. It says the flood line, 1970. That was 77. 1977, there was another flood. Yeah. In 1936. 1936, 1976. 70s. And when you walk in that space, it's chest high. Mm-hmm. Water's chest high. It's the last flood. Mm-hmm. Tell me about when you first got here mm-hmm. and you got the call that there might be a flood coming. Well, that was last year. So, um, for I first got here and I saw the river was the highest I'd ever seen it. The, the, literally the week I moved here and, um, there were entire trees floating down the river. And I was with the, uh, director of the, the, um, Johnstown redevelopment authority, who I think to some degree, does a lot of city management as well um is very you know grew up here and connected with everything and and we're up in the second floor where we were of the pattern shop looking at the river and her phone was blowing up she'd never seen the river so high in, in in her entire life here and i'm thinking holy smokes but then you know that was kind of a a fluke sort of thing the river went down and i Never really seen it that high until um, 2020, when when, uh, when it got up there again, and there was a, there was a flood, there was a flood scare in Johnstown. And then if you think like 1889, 1936, 1977, we're about due. Oh. We're about due. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so what happened? Well, there was just, man, it was just like the book. I don't know, the rain, you know, and it was, it wasn't from snowmelt. It was in September because it was right before the conference. Jake was here. Oh my God. You're ready to do the sculpture. Yeah. Well, I mean, oddly enough, we had, we rented the air compressor. We lit the furnace. We oiled the hammer. We put huge pieces of steel in there and. 
it's it's you know we are ready to go and we've been looking forward to this all year like because of covid and stuff we didn't we usually run the hammer two or three times a year but because of covid and stuff we we didn't get to so this was the first time running the hammer in 2020 or was it 2021 it's 2021 and um and uh man my phone is is starting to blow up and and you you're getting like all these people Google alerts and flood warnings, like all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, all right, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know, but then like people are actually sending like one of my, my buddies, Dan, he's from Altoona and he's a train driver and there's a, there's the Wilmore dam, which is bigger, I think, than the, than the place that the dam broke in the 1889 because that reservoir is no longer there. But I, I see the spillway is where I go fishing is the Wilmore Dam. And so I get this picture from Dan and it's like the spillway is just a certain section. It's a small section of the dam. You know, the dam is huge. The spillway is like 25 yards. And the, the whole dam was running over. Oh my God. And, and then somebody said the dam broke somebody said that and on the reporter yeah i mean you know i googled it and it says like wilmore dam is is broke and uh and and i'm like this is not happening how could this be happening right now and a flood warning obviously is something you don't take lightly in this city but i think we all are trying to ignore it with little avail and eventually, you know, right before we were going to forge, um, because you can't, you can't pull me away from that hammer very easily. Um, the fire department came and, and the representative from the fab shop next door, Johnstown welding and fabrication. And they said, you guys got to get out of here. You guys got to go up the hill. So we had to evacuate the shop. 20 minutes before the billet was getting up to temperature and the 3,000 hammer was running. And so we did. Oh, my God. And then you get home. Get home. And think. It just We're just sitting there. You're just, it's like myself, Jake, Harry, and Aaron was there. And, uh, and I, you know, what do you do? What about all the people who are there to see it? They weren't there yet. Okay, okay. No, I mean, because this was like pre-conference okay. practice. So you yeah. sit around and say... I mean, I couldn't, my, I couldn't get off my phone. I'm just like, because I'm wondering, like, when can I go back down? Is the dam really broken? Like, what is going on? How much time do you have? Misinformation. Yeah. How much time do you have before the dam breaks and before the water hits the shop? 14 minutes, I guess, oh, according boy. to the book. <laughs> <laughs> No, man, we uh, we actually went at the top of the incline plane. That's the neighborhood I live in. You know, we got in the car and drove there because you can see over the whole city and you could see how high the water was. And it was like, it was like touching bridges, you know, bridges that you yeah, yeah. have a lot of space. Like, yeah. It's crazy. It is really crazy. So eventually we deemed it safe enough to come back down. 
but this was it was about getting dark or whatever and we took a few rips on the hammer because we just had to yeah but um it was it was pretty intense well and that's another thing about the octagon room there's no electricity in there no none yeah, so we were forging in the dark basically. there's nothing i mean the hammers are run on steam yeah there's no electricity in there whatsoever Mm-hmm. The cranes are all manual. Mm-hmm. Everything is... There's no lighting in there unless the photographer comes in and has a flash bulb. Right. I mean, it was September, right? So it, it stays light until like 8 or 8.30 light enough to kind of see a little bit. But uh, it was... It was wild. Was that exciting enough for you? That's all. <laughs> you, you told me that story last night. I'm looking at the line and I'm thinking, oh my God, he has so, he's invested so much time and energy into this space. And if history repeats itself, it's just like, it's not, it's like, it's just, it's. Well, you know, it was crazy. Like it it was hard not to panic. I can't can't imagine. Dude. And like, I, so, you know, I'm down there and we're in the shop and the fire department comes and this is a tight community. People take care of each other right so fire department came to jwf and jwf they look out for us they're like we gotta go that's the fabrication facility next door yeah we gotta tell those guys you know to evacuate and so they did and and you know and i'm like all right so standing there and they're like okay you know we gotta go it's like courtney we gotta we gotta go so pack up and you know, go home. Courtney lives up in one of the um, one of the neighborhoods up on the hill as well. And it's like packing your backpack at that point seems to take forever. You know, you're just like everything's happening in slow motion. Right. Where then, do you start? Then you get in your truck, and you just know the clock is ticking if the dam's broken. They come in and they're like, and I don't remember verbatim, but they're like, the damn broke, got to get out of here. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And then I'm like, everybody's not moving fast enough, you know? And then I'm driving through town because I got to go through downtown to get to my house. And then I'm, well, then you're sitting in your truck and you're like, what's the fastest way to my neighborhood? There's six ways I can get up there. What's the fastest one? And then you choose one, and then you're sitting at a red light thinking you made the wrong decision because you're sitting there at a red light and you're watching your clock. And then, and then you get halfway up the hill and you go, all right, I'm safe. And then you go, shit, my shop. You know? And then there's nothing you can do at that point, though. It's just at the mercy of Mother Nature. I guess man or humans to some degree as well because they built the dam but um, ultimately it was okay let's hope for history to not repeat itself but it was it was scary I, I, there's a few things just to I, I hate to sum it up because, but we do have to teach a class in a minute um, I would imagine I use the word overwhelming a lot this whole weekend because it's such a huge ordeal but what I see is my appreciation for your willingness and your reverence of the history of the facility, your reverence of the work that the workers had done. I see it in your new style of hand hammers. Yeah. Your new style of hand hammers, and I don't know if we want to talk about it or not, but like, it's such a, de- it's not, a, it's a departure from your work. I have one of your, your, your current hammers, mm-hmm. and I saw on your 
the ha- I saw in your anvil the new hammer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first thing I said to you is, this is a Johnstown-influenced Pat Quinn hammer, mm-hmm. which is exciting. Mm-hmm. I see your reverence in almost everything that you've touched in this, sp- in this space. Your reverence towards the history of Johnstown. Your reverence, the history towards what they were doing in these buildings. Mm-hmm. And Johnstown couldn't have been in better hands with me. Mm-hmm. But you're also... It's not just that you came in here. You were smart enough to make this a nonprofit organization. It's a sculpture. Stu- it's a school. Mm-hmm. It's going to be focused on old techniques to create modern sculpture, which is like the greatest thing of all time. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest thing of all time. The s- teachers and instructors you have here are coming here. Salem Straub and Nick Anger and all these other guys and Nate are who we'll talk about Nate for a real sec, quick second and, and and gals we have lots lots of different kinds of instructors here. We played darts last night, had a couple beers, and Nate, what's his how did you pronounce his last name? Weiss. Nate Nate Weiss is teaching a slingshot class. Mm-hmm. You said to me that he's one of the first people to start moving down to Johnstown to create this new community. Yeah, well, you know, they told me that, well, they just moved here, him and his partner, Erica, and they're, they're wonderful people, and, uh, you know, they they really appreciate what's going on here, and, and uh, they, they see the beauty and the history of the city and all that kind of stuff, and they, they were looking to relocate, and, and I think, and I can't speak for them, but I think they, they chose Johnstown based on a lot of things, but hopefully, you know, the excitement surrounding CMA and the community we're creating here. So, excitement is the right word. <laughs> if you come down here, you can't help but be excited because, especially talking to you and seeing your future, you're, you're able to kind of, you're able to also not, it seems, I mean, you're hiding it very well, but you don't seem as overwhelmed as I would be, you know, by like a mile, even like a small segment would be overwhelming to me. I'm excited. I'm thrilled. I'm honored. And I'm excited for you and for CMA and the history of Johnstown because there's only one way to go up. Mm-hmm. Only one way to go is up. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what's the future for, what's next for the CMA? What can we, the people expect when they come down here? Tell me about the future of Center for Metal Arts. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty organic. So it, it, uh, it, it can be whatever it wants to be, which is really exciting, but also overwhelming. But I think what's what's really happening right now is, you know, we're we're a facility that's focusing on um, serious forging education. And serious doesn't mean it's not fun, but it's, you know, it's a place where you can go if you really want to learn how to forge. And, and that's kind of been my mission ever since I took over CMA and in New York Um, but you know the forging community right now is is growing and it's exciting and a lot of people are getting interested in the craft and it's it's a place where you know if you feel like you really like it and you want to you want to improve on your skills or learn certain techniques or whatever you can come to CMA and and you know, participate in a program that's going to really help you with your craft. A lot of what we're doing right now is is longer term educational stuff. So, um, you know, we've got this six week workshop that I'm really passionate about. 
Um, we're doing four semesters worth of, of forging programs at the a community college here, uh, one and two week week programs, residencies. It's a it's like a fully immersive forging experience where you can be here and focus on the craft and not worry about you know whatever you might worry about at home or whatever. It's just a it's a really good place to be if if you if you want to. If you want to further your skill set or whatever. And you have a resident. I slept in the rectory, mm-hmm. room number four. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful rectory. You have rooms, bathrooms, and you have a shared kitchen. The rooms are beautifully done. Yeah. They're, it's comfortable. It's it's a walking distance from the place. That is one thing that makes it so exciting is because all of a sudden you don't have to book a hotel room. Totally. You can walk. This is what, You well, can walk across the bridge that the workers used to walk across when they used to come here. Right. I mean, so paying homage to the history of the place, but also creating a community. Like, I'm, I, I'm really valuing in-person interactions at this point in my life. And I... I'm active on social media and I see the value in a lot of that stuff. But in my humble opinion, there's nothing is better than in-person education where you get to work directly with a professional. And then like the rectory, it's like we're creating a community here where you can interface with people directly right? and make friends like real lifelong friends and learn from them and have dinner with the instructor, you learn about their process, you learn about their life. It's, it's, it's a digital world right now. And that's, it's got a lot of benefits, but I think, you know, what, what CMA is trying to create is a really valuable, um, in-person experience, hands-on, direct, community-based. It's all love. Last thing. Tell me about the conference coming up in September with Zach Noble. Yeah, September seventeenth. What's, what's to, to expect? Um, well, we've got the main demonstration takes place in the octagon on the three thousand Chambersburg. Zach's designing a sculpture to forge under there. We're going to have a team of five again. It's really exciting. Uh, Nate and Erica are demonstrating in the classroom, so there'll be a couple different demonstrations happening. Um, Tim Lucas, our buddy, does metal spinning. He's going to have his metal spinning lathe. We have these uh, delicious foods going to be cooked on site, and then it's a it's a one day conference. So you know um, you can come here for the weekend, whatever. But it's a really, really fun experience. Everybody's hanging out, having a good time. Um, every, you know, very friendly environment. A lot going on. If you want to see the facility, if you want to see these beautiful hammers running, you, you've, maybe you've wanted to check out the classroom, but you never have. This is a good opportunity to do so. Support CMA. You know, help us get these hammers going. Um, it's just a good. It's good time, and it's a really good. Uh, look into the future of that shop as a space for artists. You're never going to get a chance or the, the opportunity to see a 3,000 pound hammer, 3,000 pound run is it's almost, rare. It's rare. Yeah. And to see sculpture being made, how long do you think the sculpture is going to take to make? All day. We'll be running the hammer all day. All day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. guys, stop playing. I stop playing around. I'm telling you, you're playing around. You've got to support CMA. You've got to support CMA. 
You've got to come down here and see it for yourself. Once you see it for yourself, you are. I'm a believer. I've always been a believer, but I'm more of a believer now with Pat Quinn. It's exciting. It's exciting. And once again, I'm honored to even just have like a toe in this situation because all I want is for you. What when when you took over CMA? It was so exciting to me because I thought this is what we need. This is what we need. You see things on fucking YouTube and you see these things and you see people doing this stuff. But now you have a place to go to see the highest level mm-hmm. of forging being done and to be able to be ta- taught under. Yeah. And, you know, don't be intimidated. Like, as a lot of people have said that to me or whatever, it's everybody's welcome here. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your skill set, what what you're interested in. This This is a place where... You check your ego at the door, you come here, you meet people, you, you gain real life experience and you just kind of like get get involved in, in the betterment of the craft, the future of artistic forging and, and just, um, you know, be a part of a, a really supportive, um, friendly community. Pat Quinn, nothing more to say. We could keep going, guys. We could keep going. But I got a class to teach in 12 minutes. So I got to get my ass in gear. We got to finish this class off. We're doing a great job. Go to centerformetalarts.org and click on a weekend workshop or a long. I know that Salem Straub's got amazing knife making class coming up, Damascus, and he's going to be forging and it's going to be like a life changing situation. You're going to have Nick Anger and all these other guys. It's the best of the best and me, the worst of the best. I have, listen, if they let me in the door, then they can let you in the door. Trust me. So once again, guys, centerformetalarts.org. Follow Pat on Instagram, handmade in VT. Hand forged. Hand forged. Sorry. Hand forged in VT on Instagram. Go follow the Center for Metal Arts on Instagram. When they post, share the post. Tell your friends. If you're a metal worker and you want this thing to be as good as it can be, be supportive. This is very important. Pat. I'm honored to be here. I'm so grateful to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.